we'll open us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, God, we thank you so much for your mercies toward us that are new every day. Thank you that we can gather together to worship you. We thank you for your word that gives us all that we need to live lives that are glorifying to you on this earth, including instruction and about how to work and how you've made us to work and how you yourself are a worker. And we pray that as we as we look at the, that these truths this morning from your word, that you would more and more just shape our thinking and our affections and our desires and just shape us as, as people and more into the image of Christ and uh, help our thinking to be conformed to the truths of your word and and not to the deceptions of the enemy or of sin. And we pray for help in this regard. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, here we are, second week two of our class on work and vocation. Some of you weren't here last week, but I either even if you were, let me just re- remind you of what our purpose in the cl- class is going to be. We talked last week about what I called, I don't think I made this up, other people have referred to it, as a, a gap between Sunday and Monday, um, which you could also, we talked about not only being a gap between Sunday and Monday, but um, really what it you know, comes down to is a gap sometimes between um, what is spiritual, the, these things that we talk about, our Christian faith, the spiritual world, and the, what we, you know, what might be called the secular world, or the things that we do in the everyday, our everyday responsibilities. So, you know, we're going to spend all of us anywhere between 5 to 10 to 15 hours a week doing spiritual things, or maybe, maybe more, but um, we're, by necessity, we're going to spend a lot of our time doing secular things, um, cooking dinner, uh, going driving places, running errands, doing work. Um, so how do we connect these things? Is there, is there, is it, I argued last week that this distinction actually isn't biblical, that we shouldn't think of the world as, as this separation between spiritual realities and secular necessarily, that, that God, as we're going to see today, is the creator of all of it. He's the Lord of all of it, and so all of it, um, God created the whole world together. There are, there are spiritual and secular. I mean, there are spiritual and physical worlds, but it's not as though one is better and one is worse than the other. So part of this, as we, as we think about how to bridge this gap, we're going to think of ourselves in relationship toward God and how we serve Him as we walk in faith in the midst of our work, as well as equipping us to love our neighbors as ourselves in our places of work. So thinking not only vertically, how we relate to God, but also horizontally, how do we relate to other people, those neighbors. You know, remember the story of the Good Samaritan? You know, he asked, the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and basically to make the point that whoever whoever you're, you're coming across in your daily life, you should think of them as your neighbor, which if you're in the workplace, um, you know, that would include those people that you're rubbing shoulders with in your work. And then also to help us to grow in our, under, in, in our understanding of our role in caring for the world that God has made. This world, as we're going to see, it is a, it's a good place, and we have a, a responsibility here as God's stewards, so to speak, of, of the world that He has made. One... Um, you know, all of us are going to have, um, you know, we're all, we're all existing in these relationships toward God and each other and the world, whether we understand it or think through it. So, I mean, this is something that as I've been preparing this and thinking over the last, I don't know, decade or so of it being in the workplace, I've started to try and think more about it. 
this, and I've also tried to, as I've been getting ready to teach this class, I've been talking to others as well. Uh, I was working with a contractor a few weeks ago, and I asked him what his philosophy of work was, and he kind of uh, got that deer in the headlights look for a minute and said something like, well, I just, I swing the hammer and I hit the nail. Uh, which, there's some truth to that. That's, that's his, that's his um, but he hadn't really thought deeply about beyond, beyond that. I mean, why do you do what you do? Um, what is the design, the purpose underneath the, the work that we do? So that's what we're going to be talking about this in this class. At least starting today, we're going to be getting into, uh, we're here the second week, the, we're going to talk about the design of work. Um, and then this, this, these first two weeks, so actually the first three weeks, are really going to be heavily looking into the beginnings of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and how the, those truths that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 play out through the rest of Scripture. But we're going to be looking at God's design in creation and then as we work our way through, we're going to go from creation to, to the curse, how work is affected, how the whole world is cursed, how we are cursed, how sin has really corrupted the whole world. And so work is no longer what it was, what it was meant to be. But then we're, after that, we're going to look into how the gospel uh, reshapes these things and equips us as, as Christians to work with new perspective and new power and, and a new um, compass. Um, in, in our workplaces. If you weren't here last week, let me just remind you, these are the two books, or maybe you were, but we're going to be basically following um, Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, for the first uh, ten weeks. And then um, the second, or the last five weeks, we're going to be looking at some issues or, or specific topics that aren't necessarily addressed in Tim Keller's book. Think you know More, more of just a topical approach. These first ten weeks are a little bit more... Um, Systematic or like progressive, where we're just following the kind of the storyline of the Bible from creation to fall and new creation, and thinking about work in that context. And then those last five weeks are going to be more thinking about um, practical questions that we might deal with, relationships at work, sharing the gospel at work, and so on. Um, so these are both uh, in our bookshelf, bookstall. Um, Trish has got them over there. As well, let me just remind you, some of you picked this up, but if you'd like to, um, we have a little study guide that follows this uh, outline. I just grabbed, I found these online. They're, they're actually, they're helpful. I mean, it just says um, questions to get you thinking and interacting with the material. If you'd like to read the books and you'd like to think a little bit about the material during the week ahead of time, feel free to pick up one of these. I'll have them up here. All right. So, Last week we started off by I did a little informal survey. I don't I'm not gonna you know I don't have names to go with this or anything, but these were the five questions I asked. And I, I learned from the survey actually that some of you might be, do a better job of teaching this class than I would. Um, in that some of you um, had uh, you know your answers were all some of you were, were all um, fives all across the board. There was a we ranked from one to five. Does your Christian faith influence how you do your work? On that one, about 90% of you responded that either yes, it had a significant influence, or it was a very, very, you know, it was up towards the upper end of, it was a four or a five. So I think a lot of us are in that place where, where our Christian faith is influencing how we do our work. But the second question of, you know, thinking about how to integrate your Christian faith in your work, that was more of a mixed bag. There was about 50% of you that said, yes, it has a strong, um, like a strong connection with my work, and then the rest, the other 50% were unsure or on the other end, where we didn't, they didn't really see a connection. Do you recognize how your work contributes to society? 
again, it was a strong positive response. Most people did see how their work, of course, um, contributed to society. But these last two, in regard to both praying at work, praying about work, and sharing the gospel at work, I, we were on the, the lower end. I think only about 40% of us prayed about our work regularly, and only about a quarter of us, 25% of us, shared the gospel at work regularly. And among there, I think there's some of us that are maybe like homeschooling moms, and so it's a little bit of a different... Sharing the gospel at work as a homeschooling mom is important, but it's a, it's a little bit different dynamic, you know, as you're discipling your children than necessarily getting to the gospel in the workplace. So I'm hoping uh, part of the goal of this class is... You know, to help all of us think more clearly about how our work connects and, and also how we can, as we see that, I think as we see our connection between our faith and our work, hopefully we'll grow in praying about our work and, um, and also sharing the gospel at work as well. So, I made the point last week, um, as, as far as how we make this connection, how do we, you know, get rid of this, this separation between our, or not as we try to connect these worlds, you know, the Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. I also mentioned that quote from Abraham Kuyper, that there's not one square inch of all of existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So that includes our workplaces. It's not an accident. It's not an accident that we spend a lot of our time doing work, doing labor, whether it's physical labor, mental labor, labor in the home. These are, these are, it's not accidental, a result of the fall, that is our, our existence as humans. So, and I, I think that we should, we are right to think that that it comes from God. That is his, his design. That's what we're going to look at this week. Tim Keller put it this way, and this is in his introduction to his book. He says, if the God of the Bible exists, and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest one, pursued in response to God's calling, can matter forever. We're going to talk more about that as the, as the course goes on, but what I want to see this week, this week's going to be a little bit more, a little bit more theological, in that we're going to be looking at, at God himself as the, the reality that really is under, underneath our work, the work that we do in society is actually we're going to see rooted in, in who God is and in his, his work in creation. Before we dive into that, I'll just point out that Tim Keller's, he, he, his um, outline for his book is basically seeking to answer these three questions. Why do you want to work? Why is it so hard to work? And how can we overcome the difficulties and find satisfaction in our work through the gospel? Which reminds me, actually, I meant to say this earlier. After we get through these first five or six weeks, I'm going to actually be inviting members of the audience who will n- know ahead of time that they've been invited to do so, um, but to come up and actually have a bit of a discussion with m- me in front of the g- class about these, these three questions. Um, you know, thinking about why you want to work in terms of the creation and how God created us to work. Why is it hard to work because of sin and the curse and how that affects us in our different workplaces and then how the gospel equips us to, to uh, overcome those difficulties and, and find satisfaction and fulfillment in our work. So, I mean, I'm sharing obviously from my perspective. Some, most of you know I work as a mechanical engineer. But I'd like to hear, you know, it's going to be, we're going to all have different experiences of that, whether if you're in the home, if you're teaching, if you're, you know, in healthcare and all the, the variety of vocations that you all are, are in. We, I think we have a pretty good representation here. So today we're going to be looking in Genesis 1, 
And our main idea is that the work that God does in creation and providence, it shows us both the design and the limits of work for his human creatures. So we're going to be looking at three things. We're going to be looking at God's work in creation. By that, we know, as you know, that's a unique work that God did. Ex nihilo is the Latin phrase, out of nothing. Um, it, it's a work that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 in the space of six days where he made all things out of nothing. And then we're also going to look at the work of providence, which uh, we'll get into this more, but this is really the ongoing work that God does to care for, to sustain the world. Um, you know, Matthew 10, 29, Jesus says that not a sparrow falls to the ground without his, without, apart from my Father, that God is, is caring for and sustaining and governing the world. Um, he didn't just start it up and then let it go and let it do it run its course. So we're going to look at God's work in providence. And we're also going to look at God's rest, which we're going to see in Genesis 1 and 2, and how the, his work and his rest is really intended as a model for us as we think about our work. So let me ask you just to think about a thought experiment first. Could God, or you know, maybe what if God had made a world where we could sit around and the earth would just produce for us whatever we wanted, food just came to us, um, all our needs were just met, um, and we just had to sit around and ask for it. Have any of you seen the movie Wally? Going back... I don't know, it's uh, 15 years or so. Well, in that movie, um, humans leave the Earth and they go live on this spaceship and there's robots that, they, they, they stare at these screens and they tell these screens what they want and then robots bring them food in a cup and, you know, robots come and clean them and they don't have to do anything, they don't have to go anywhere, they don't have to work. And, as you can imagine, they turn into... Couch potatoes. They, they, <laughs> uh, there's a point in the movie where they, you know, one of the, the, the character, one of the, the characters, the captain of the ship, realizes that what they have is not real life. They're just they're they're subsisting, but they're not living. They're not experiencing life. And he uh, he says, "I don't want to just survive. I want to live." And so, you know, I think it's significant to think God doesn't just he doesn't make a world that is this way. The world, the earth doesn't just, you know, drop vegetables on your front doorstep. You have to go out, and humans have to work. We have to labor in order to, to, um, to survive, to to live, to thrive as humans. So, um, and I'm going to argue this this morning that this is actually reflective of truths about God Himself. So we're going to dive in a little bit deep now. If some of you came to um, family camp, you probably, you know, this might tap into some things that you, we heard from Steve Meister But I, um, in our family camp. If you didn't, just try to bear with me here. But I want to, we're going to think about this for a second. You know, if you can, you can open your Bibles, you might as well, to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, if you have them with you, Genesis 1, we're going to spend some time there thinking about the creation. So what's the first First thing we read in Genesis 1. In the beginning. In the beginning of what? Of us. Of us, yeah. Of time, space. Yeah. What, what, was not, what did not begin in the beginning? God. God. So, we ha- here we are in the beginning, which really I think is 
people have said, um, theologians have said that God didn't necessarily create time. He created, he created a world that we live in that, that experiences change. Things progress and develop. And time is really just a measure of the progression and development and change that, that exists in the world that God made. So when it says in the beginning, I think that's what it's talking about. The beginning of this world that is marked by change and progression and development this is what um, this is how the Bible begins. But before the beginning, there was God, and um, God does not change. God is Im- the the theological term for that is He is immutable. He is without change. Um, I'm going to put up here a a definition. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, just as a way to help us think about this, I'm just going to read this. As we think about you know, what God did in creation, I think it's important to frame it with remembering who God is. Um, there is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Now, there's a lot of words in there. Um, that's a very dense definition. But, and uh, you know, it's interesting. The Bible doesn't begin with a definition like this, does it? It just says in the beginning, God. It doesn't tell us necessarily who God is or all of these, these things about God. But as, you, as we read through Scripture, as we learn more about God, we begin, you know, to, to see how these things come into, um, they are revealed to us just progressively. And the things I want to point out to begin with is that, like I said, God is immutable in that He, he does not change. The thing about that, when God created the world, it's not as though God somehow changed by, in becoming a creator of the world. Um, this is this is hard, you know, there, there is some incomprehensibility here as we go back to trying to think before time, what was God like? There is no before necessarily, because before, we're just, we're stuck in time-bound language. So we can't necessarily understand this with comprehensively. We're not, maybe someday, but in this life, we're not going to. But we do know that God is unchanging. So God did not become necessarily, it's not something new that he became when he became creator. We also know that he's without parts, which is the old way of saying that God is, it's not like God has different, he's not made up of different ingredients. Like, you know, there's goodness and there's beauty and there's holiness and there's wrath and like all of these things that already existed, like came in together to create, to make us, to make God. Um, God is is who he is. He's most, he's absolute. He is the standard of all of these other things. All of these other things derive from him, if that makes sense. And what I want us to think about in the act of creation then is that if God, we cannot think of God as though there's like a, an important part of God where he, you know, redeems the world and saves the world or, and then there's like a less important part of God where he does other things like you know, watches over the sparrows and counts the numbers of hair on your head. Like, we can't, we, God is, is one being. The, you know, the theological term for that is that he's a simple being. He, he doesn't have parts. You can't divide him up into different, different or parts and then describe them as better or worse. <coughs> They're just, it's just God. He is who he is. 
So all that to say that in the creation, God did not become something new. And it's not as though his work as creator is somehow lesser or, um, than his work as redeemer or savior. It's just, this is who he is. I guess I, by that I want you to, to, to realize that you know, that when we open up the book of Genesis and we see God working, God creating, he's doing this out of his, his infinite, perfect character, his being. That is what he, he, he willed to create. Um, he wasn't compelled to create. It wasn't like this was a, a lesser thing that he, you know, someone, he decided he would do this thing so that he could accomplish a, a necessarily a greater good that he himself being infinite in being and perfection and unchanging, he, he created the world. I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I'm hoping it's... A, it, I know these are kind of um, deep waters to, to, to walk through, but I want you to see that God, um, God is eternally unchanging, um, unchain, in an unchangeable fashion, he is the creator. He is... Um, that's that's the first thing we see about him. Um, which, that in itself is, you know, it's interesting, the Bible doesn't begin with this definition. It begins, the first thing it tells us about God is that he created. In the beginning, God created. And God created the heavens and the earth. Um, if you look through Genesis 1, we see God creating. We see God work. you know, Genesis 1-1 is really a summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But if you look through the rest of that chapter, what are some of the things that you see God doing? Some of the, the verbs, the actions that God is taking. He speaks. He speaks. Yep. What else? Hovering. What was that? Hovering. Hovering. Keep going through the rest. If you kind of glance through the rest of the chapter, you remember there's this, you know, this pattern of six days of activity, of work. He saw. Separated. Separated. Called. Yep, called or named. Rendered judgment. What do you mean by that, Donovan? He saw and he said it is good and he decided between good and good. Yeah, he's um declared something to be good. Right. He's uh declaring or yeah, judging. In verse 22, God blessed them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I think it probably says somewhere else, you know, that he created. I mean, even the created or made, I think I think it might say made somewhere. Made, yeah. Yeah, made and then set in place. You know, what's interesting about these um, activities, there's some of these that are clearly, you know, find correlation. I mean, this is in a sense, it's a unique action. None of us are going to create ex nihilo. There's, there's a certain amount of this that is just totally different and separate from us. But there's also models, things that we can see about, about our work. We do see, I mean, there's things here that are more physical that he's making, he's creating, he's separating, he's shaping, he's setting in place. And from there, I think we can see that um, work includes physical labor, you know, creating and shaping and molding things. Um, but it also includes what we might think of as like mental labor or, or you know, that work of, like Donovan said, of, of making judgments and then naming things and calling them and um, seeing them and speaking. There, there's, a, there's also 
mental activity that, that God is, is performing as well. So when you look at this, what do you see? Well, let me ask this question. Um, why, did God, why do you think God created the earth in six days? Do you think that he needed six days to do it? The or- he's orderly. Yeah. Yeah, if someone can turn to Exodus 20 and read for us Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. You know, obviously, we all know, we know this. If God is infinite in power, infinite in perfection, you know, there would be no... It would be no different for him to create all of the world in an instant versus six days. You know, he's not bound by time. It's not like he has to gather up his resources to accomplish each task. So... It's interesting, though, that he does it in six days. Can someone read for us Exodus 20? Uh, this is from the account of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11. Go ahead, Isaiah. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave, or your cattle or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. All right, so we have here first a command, right? The, what's the command there, Isaiah? To remember the Sabbath day. Re- remember the Sabbath day. And to labor for six days and do all your work, but to rest on the seventh. Um, and then we see in verse 11 a, a grounding, a basis, a, a justification for this command. And what was that, Isaiah? It's the way that God created in six days, working and resting on the Sabbath. Right. So, and as we're thinking about, there may be more reasons why God created the world in six days. That, you know, He does what He pleases. He's infinite and incomprehensible. But at least in Exodus 20, Moses saw, and God, in God revealing His, His Ten Commandments to Moses, he saw this, this pattern of six days of labor and a day of rest as being a, a grounding for a rhythm of work and rest that was to be replicated by humans, by, by his people. You know, it's interesting, it's not only the command, Exodus 20, is, you know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The next line, though, is six days you shall labor and do all your work. There's actually, a, a, we see both sides enshrined in, in that command, both a command to rest and to set aside a day to the Lord, but also a command to work, to, to labor for six days, to be productive in, 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 in working. So I think that's significant. I think that's, uh, there may be more to it, that, but I, it, I think we can at least confidently say that is part of the reason why God created the world in six days, because He wanted to give us a model for us to follow. You know, if you read through Genesis 1, which we're not going to do um, in its entirety now, but, you know, you, you, you probably remember the pattern, right? There's an, God, He speaks, to, and, and something happens. You know, He says, let there be light, and there was light. And then there's more description of that. He separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And then there's a concluding phrase, right? There was evening, and there was morning the first day. And that continues, you know, as I'm sure if you grew up in the church, you learn these things in, you know, Sunday school class growing up. But, um, you know, there's the first day, there's the second, there's evening and there's morning, the second day. There was evening and the morning, the third day, and the fourth day, and the fifth day, and the sixth day. Now, you just think about that for a second. I mean, 
it's pretty alarming. I mean, it ought to be astounding to us to think about this, that you know, we go out and do our work the first day and the second day and the third day. I mean, the, the Bible is presenting God's work in making the world in the same terms that could be used to describe humans going about our daily work. The rhythm of, of going out, setting yourself to a task, completing the task, and then finishing it, and then having, you know, having the day completed, and going on to the next day. It's, it's hard, obviously God didn't have to do it that way, and it's hard to even uh, you know, wrestle with that. I mean, it is a simple fact, but um, thinking about that, I think, really changes, it should change how we, what we think about the purpose of work. God himself worked in this way to create the world. So, let's think about, just for a second, similarities and differences. I mean, like I said, God's incomprehensible, He's infinite, we're not. So, it's not necessarily a one-to-one correspondence. But what do we see as we think about the different similarities and differences in God's work here in Genesis 1 and our work? What's what's similar? I think He saw that it was good, and I think we satisfaction and from our work in, in some ways, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point. I don't know if you heard Adam. He, said, he saw that it was good. Um, you know, God did something in such a way that he, he created something new and He arranged it and separated it in such a way that He actually made something beautiful, something good, something of value, which, you know, it, in our work, uh, depending on your profession, you may not see that on a regular basis. I mean, there's going to be differing amounts of of um, analogy in your work. To, but you know, if you if you are a craftsman, if you're a woodworker, and you build something and it's beautiful and valuable, you could definitely see that correlation. And, and I think to other, you'll see that in other ways in other professions. What else? What else is similar in between God's work and our work? Just um, based on all the the words that were up on the board. Like hovering and separating and judging. I got the picture of like standing over a counter making dinner. You're kind of doing all the same things. You're hovering over, looking at things, you separate the vegetables with the knife. You say, like, does this look right? Like, if, if you mentally say to yourself, okay, this is correct, I'm going to put it in the pan now. Like, the, the whole, like, just doing a task. Like basically, you're doing all those things. Yeah. Even if it's not for your like professional job, these are things we do like every day without thinking about it. Yeah, I think you're right. Remind me your name. I mean, uh, Marcus. Marcus. That's right. Um, yeah, that's right. You, you, we're creating, we're arranging, we're separating, we're making judgments. I think you're right. There's definitely similarities there. Um, anything else? I mentioned. Oh, go ahead, Melinda. Order. Yeah. And establishing patterns. And- Bringing things into like set places. Yeah. Establishing boundaries. <clears throat> like when you devise the seed. Right. Daily, morning, evening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tender. Um, and then rest. Mm-hmm. So typically we work and have a break, a weekend. Right. Yeah, that's right. We we see that same rhythm. Um, you know, like we saw in Exodus twenty. There's a rhythm of work. And rest. So, what about differences? That's how it got. It's we definitely see some similarities here. But what? Do, let's just be clear. There's some differences as well. Do right, you want to say something, Keith? No, I will. Um, no, I thought I saw your hand. He did. He's not sweating while he's doing it. Right. <laughs> That's right. And even in that, he's not. 
he's not affected. He's not changed. He's not. It didn't require any effort in that sense, like that. You know, where we we work and then we need to rest because we expended energy. Mm-hmm. You know, God is not like that. He is completely self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. He has infinite resources. Um, so it's it's not like he lacks anything or. Um, yeah, expends any energy. What he made was perfect. Mm-hmm. Ours is certainly not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We could proclaim, and we saw that it was bad. It's both, right? It's good and bad, probably. There's a hope. You know, one thing I think that's interesting to think about here is, especially in our day, there's a maybe since the Industrial Revolution, there's been a, an increased uh, focus on being as efficient as possible, you know, making things, you know, as productive and profitable and as possible, right? Um, now, God could certainly have created the world more efficiently, couldn't He? I mean, he, we almost see Him not, it's not as though He's concerned in doing it the most efficient way. It's just, the, the idea we're getting, I think, is that it's almost the work itself, for its own sake, um, to, to, to labor, to create something beautiful and good without a concern necessarily for how long it took or how much money was made. You see, God's not getting paid. There's not a, he's not trying to maximize profit or make as much money as he can. He's, he's doing good work, creating beautiful things, arranging them without the, those you know, economic concerns. And we see from all that, the summary statement that some of you mentioned, um, God saw that it was good. You know, we remember goodness isn't something that exists outside of God. It's not like there's some other standard of goodness, and he made something and it adhered to that standard. It was that he himself is the standard of goodness. And out of his infinite being and power, he created this world, and in a sense, therefore, it actually corresponds in a way to, to him. He is the standard of goodness. So he put, uh, he created the world, um, made it good. In a way, it's reflecting his glory and his power and his goodness. That's why it is good. Um, it's not because it adheres to the checklist of goodness that somehow exists outside of God. All right, so that's, this is God. We see God working in Genesis 1. I'd just like to point out, you know, it's interesting throughout the rest of the Bible, God is actually praised for being the creator. It's not as though being a creator is something, like I said before, something less, something less important than other aspects of his being, as though there were different parts of God and some parts were, were more important than others. You know, in Revelation 4, we see this picture of God, the, the living creatures around the throne, and they falling down. The elders are falling down before Him in worship. They're casting their crowns. And um, verse eleven says, "Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created." The another the Westminster Confession says later that God is the fountain of all being. That all things came into being from Him uh, by His will, by His 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 activity, His creation. They they came into existence. You know, we see different things about God revealed over time. You know, we see we learn that He's Creator first, and then later we learn that He's Redeemer, and that He's you know we see all these other aspects of His character revealed through time. Um, but God is just who He is. He He. He is, um, 
He's just, he is. He is who he is. You know, as he told Moses in Exodus 3, I am who I am. And the fact that he is creator, it's, it, um, it's, an, it's not a lesser part of, of God's being. It's actually used to, you know, as a, as a point of, a platform for praise throughout other places in Scripture as well. In Isaiah 40, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Or Isaiah 45, 18, thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. So this is, we've seen God's work in creation. Let's think just for a moment now about God's work, his, his ceasing from that work. Uh, Sandra mentioned it, um, and we've talked a little bit about it before, but at the end of Genesis 1, if someone can read those verses for me, Genesis 1, 31 through chapter um, 2, verse 3. Scott Raymer, you want to go for it? <clears throat> you want it from the Geneva uh, Bible, it'll sound a little different. <laughs> And God saw all that he had made, and lo, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. For in the seventh day God ended his work, which he had made, and the seventh day he rested from all his work, which he had made. No more, huh? So God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created in made. Yeah, so as Keith pointed out, God didn't need to rest. but um, And you know, God's not bound by time like we are. So even when it says that there's evening and there's morning, and this, you know, we have to understand there's a bit of an, there's an accommodation here to us in our time-bound existence. God doesn't exist with successive moments like we do. Um, and yet, His work in creating is presented in this way to instruct us and to, to teach us We've mentioned some of these things already, but in God's, you know, in God's rest, we're, we're meant to see a pattern for ourselves. You know, unlike God, we actually need to rest, don't we? We need, if we don't rest, we get worn down. We begin to lose strength, lose energy, lose mental or emotional, you know, we can sink into despair and discouragement. You know, we need rest both physically and mentally and emotionally. Just as, as humans, we need rest from our labor in order to, to replenish our strength. What's another reason why we need rest? Why, you remember Jesus said, you know, the, um, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man, as though it's something good for us. What, why, what, what else besides just replenishing our strength? Well, resting, as far as the Sabbath is concerned with believers, I mean, we come together, we refresh our soul, we are ready to start back out into the workforce or whatever to, to go again. And so just a chance to re- recharge yeah. and be present before the Lord in a more focused way. Right. It almost reminds me of like fasting. You know, you're fasting for a day in order to focus more on prayer and worship. Than- yeah. Well, that's an interesting connection. I didn't think of that. But when you're fasting, you're saying, um, God, you're more important to me than food. Um, you know, this might connect more with us if we were agrarian society, like in the middle of harvest. You know, you've got to get out there. You've got to, you've got to harvest. Otherwise, if you don't harvest your crops, you don't have food. Like, to think in that sense, like, okay, well, I'm going to not work for a day. I'm going to stop. Let the, let the field just sit there. I'm not going to harvest my... Um, 
my rice or you know whatever you're harvesting God you know for us resting for a day is actually a way that we can show our trust our faith in God that yes God's given us this responsibility to work but it's not as though our work is ultimately what's going to sustain us that we, we can rest and trust that God is the one who sustains us so in that um, you know, in this balance between work and rest, I think we can see, well, let me just point out one other similarity, or um, another aspect about rest, is that, you know, it's not, when God rested, it's not as though, you know, he took a break for six days from, of work so that he could play his Nintendo Switch, or, you know, just be idle, sit around and do nothing. God's, God's rest is not necessarily the same as idleness um, and doing nothing. You know, if you read through the whole account of Genesis 1 and you come to the end where God is resting, you notice, you know, it's, it, obvi- it comes right after his pronouncement that the creation was very good. And it, it also, you know, twice it says, well, in, in chapter two, 2, it says he finished his work he had done and he rested from all his work that he had done. You almost get the idea of him looking back with pleasure and enjoyment on the fruits of his labor and the, the good creation that he had made, the very good world that he had made, and just enjoying, enjoying the goodness of th- that world. Like a, you know, a craftsman who's just done something worth, made something beautiful, something good, and is reflecting on that and enjoying it. I think you know, that's something, as we get, obviously we're, we're now after the curse, so we can't, it's hard for us to sometimes even to, think of work in those terms, but, you know, I think we do see, depending on your vocation, you may see glimpses of that on some days where you have something good to show for your labor, and you can, it's a good thing to thank God for that, to enjoy um, what God has given you to do. But, yeah, we do rest as a way to, to communicate that ultimately our work is not our God. God is our God. Tim Keller put it this way in his, in Every Good Endeavor. He said, you will not have a meaningful life without work, but you cannot say that your work is the meaning of your life. If you make any work the purpose of your life, even if that work is church ministry, you create an idol that rivals God. And the Sabbath, a time of rest, a rhythm of work and rest, should be for us a weekly reminder that the work is a good thing. It's not the ultimate thing. That God himself is, our work is under, it's subservient to God. All right, that's God's work of creation, and we thought, and, and also His rest. Let me just more a little, a little more quickly. We'll go through God's work of providence. I won't go through. There's a couple of references there you could write down. I'm not going to read them now, but you know, I, I mentioned before, God's not like a watchmaker who makes a watch and then lets it go. You know, Matthew six it says that Jesus says that He clothes the the, the lilies of the field. He feeds the sparrows. The Westminster Confession says that God upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least. You see this throughout the scriptures. And I'm going to get to an objection some of you might be having, some of you might have, but um, let me just look at Psalm 104. This is probably one of the best places that you see the Bible talking about God's um, sustaining and his governing and disposing all things. In Psalm 104 actually begins, the verses that I don't have up here 
starting in verses 1 through 9, he praises God for his work in creating the world. And then the author turns and now thinks of how God continues to sustain the world and govern it and, and to keep, keep the world going. I think for the sake of time, I won't read the whole thing. It, it would be, you know, it'd be a good... You, you would profit from it if you spent time just reading it and thinking about it in, that, in this context. But notice some of the things that it says he does. It says, From your lofty abode, verse 13, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Almost like you, know, you water your garden. You go out and water your plants that you're growing. God waters the mountains. In verse 14, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. You know, springtime comes around, the grass starts, you know, we have a few hot days, you see the grass starting to grow? God is causing the grass to grow. Verse 19, He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all, verse 20, When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. Lions are going about hunting for their dinner, and when they find their dinner, it's that God is feeding them. He is giving them their food. We're just here seeing the, the psalmist is reflecting on, on just the natural world and how it all works. And he's seeing God's hand in governing it all. Including in verse 23, it says, Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Now God is governing the world, and that includes thousands and millions of people getting up in the morning, going to their work, doing productive work, and then returning home. And this leads the psalmist to praise God. In the next verse, in verse 24, he says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. They all look to you, verse 27, all the creatures that you've made. They look to you to give them their food in due season. You give it to them. They gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Uh, verse 31, May the Lord rejoice in His work. So the psalmist is looking around at the natural world and he's seeing animals eating and grass growing and rain falling. And he's seeing in all those things God's hand in actually caring for and governing the world. Um, you see the same thing in Psalm 65. I think of this every time, I mean, when I... When I drive to work, depending on what time I leave, I'll see the sunrise. And you know, Psalm 65, verse 8 says that you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. I don't remember who said this. Maybe one of you remembers it. But I think it might have been C.S. Lewis. And I'm, I'm going to paraphrase in my, own, in my own words. But something to the effect of, um, you know, you think that the sun rises every morning because the um, earth is spinning on its axis. But couldn't we also say the sun rises every morning because God tells it to rise every morning? God is, he is making the going out of the morning, the evening to shout for joy. He's, he's joyfully sustaining the world. He's visiting the earth and watering it. Uh, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks, the valleys with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. So some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, and if you're not, and I'm sure other people that we live and work among would say something like, well, that's fine for, you know, 3,000 years ago, primitive theological understanding of the world. Now we have science. Now we know that it's not God that causes the grass to grow, right? It's, you know, photosynthesis and the 
cycle of uh, nitrogen, and some of you could probably explain it better than me. But um, you know, now we, we know actually that it's you know things like gravity and electricity and motion and chemistry. Those are the things that really cause things to grow, right? <laughs> How do? You, where are these laws written that govern the world? Gra- law of gravity. Who who? Where where is it written? Newton. Newton. Yeah. <laughs> You know, all of us in all our various aspects of work, you know, there are the, and we've all learned, you know, if you've, if you've been to school for any amount of time, you know, even in just elementary school, you're learning science, you know, you're learning about these laws that govern the world. But that's really contrary to what Bi- the Bible says about how the world is governed. I mean, the Bible doesn't exclude, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't contradict in that the Bible Bible's not saying that gravity doesn't exist, but it's it's saying that it's not an impersonal law that was written and just you know is up there somewhere in the universe governing the way the world works. The the view of the Bible is that God is is the one who is is sustaining the, the entire existence. And you see that, for example, in Colossians one, which is actually speaking of Christ as the image of the invisible God, but it says of, of him that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, that is by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So I think one, a distinction here to make that's helpful is thinking about first and second causes. It's not as though second causes like photosynthesis don't exist. They do exist. God, it's a process that God designed where grass grows and takes light from the sun and you know, turns it into uh, cellular growth and um, all that. As well as any other scientific process, you know, the world operates by means of these principles, but they're not impersonal laws that were just out there in space somewhere. I know as humans, we uncover these. We find that the sun rises every day. Oh, maybe. And then we, you know, we, we kind of explore the world. We learn about it. We find out that it's because the earth is spinning on its axis and so on. And, you know, as well as all the other things we discover about the world. But that doesn't mean that God's not the one doing it. Um, that doesn't mean that we've found the first cause. Like the real reason the sun rises is because the earth is spinning on its axis. Well, it's true. The earth is spinning on its axis. But... The earth is spinning on its axis because God is holding it together and sustaining it and causing these things to operate. So, this is why, you know, when Jesus said in John, the ver- one of the verses I didn't go to, I re- you might you may have wrote it down, I think it's John five, seventeen, where Jesus is being questioned about the, the fact that he's working on the Sabbath. And he says, my father is working until now, and I am working. God is at work in his providence sustaining and governing and directing all of the world around us. So we think about that. Um, as we get into our work, we'll, we'll reflect more on that. But you will, we see actually both ways that our work is like God in His providence and how it's, there's ways that it's unlike God, obviously. He's infinite. He's all-wise. Uh, he knows all things. But you think about your work, you know, our work as humans. There's ways that it's like God's work of providence and that we're, we're trying, some of us, you know, are maybe more creating things and building things. Others of us are trying to preserve order and keep things from falling apart. And we're dealing with the, the effect of, of sin and, and, just, and um, 
corruption in the world and, and trying to preserve it. And so God's work in creation and God's work in providence, they both are for us a model for us to think about our work. So just to summarize, work is itself a good thing, not just because God says it's a good thing, but because actually God is a worker. God, God didn't become a worker when he made the world. There's, there's, in here, we're dealing with incomprehensibility. It's hard to understand exactly these truths about God. But there's, God created. God is infinite in perfection. This isn't something new that he became. He's always been this way. He is who he is. But, and what we see in, in him in creating the world provides for us a, a model and really a, a stamp of approval upon work as something good. This is something that God, our infinitely good and perfect God, does. As a result, we can see because of who God is, and, and we see that we are designed for a balance between work and rest, with more work than rest. Our rest is to be a time to stop our work, both for the purpose of worship and also reflection upon God and our work. Tim Keller put it like this. He said, you know, like, we need, uh, well, like a fish in, in water. You know, a fish need water to thrive and flourish. And the same for us. We need work. We need um, pr- production, productivity. Um, God made us to function this way. Um, you know, you might, maybe you can relate. You know, if you take a, you get a break from work or whatever your daily responsibilities are and you have maybe unstructured time and you think you have great plans for how it's all going to turn out, but then you just don't do anything and you end up sitting around and um, you find it's, you know, four o'clock and the day's gone and you're like, what did I do today? And you don't actually feel fulfilled. And not to say there's not a time to rest, but um, actually idleness and doing nothing is hurtful to our souls. It's not how we were made to flourish as, as humans. So we need, you know, these boundaries. Work and rest, this balance is uh, what we were made to, how we were made to flourish. And ultimately, it's a reminder that this balance, this, this rhythm should be a reminder to us that our work is subservient to God. So next week, we're going to take these ideas. This week, we mostly, well, let me just read this last quote. Tim Keller says, we don't need, merely need the money from work to survive. We need the work itself to survive and live fully human lives. Which, you know, this is even, it's explicit in the text. We didn't really get into it today. We'll get into it next week. But where God says in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. And he talks about how you know, we, God, God made us to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over all living things. So God's work provides a, a, a model for us. And since we're made in the image of God, we'll, we are called to reflect that in our work. Any questions, comments? Yeah, just to tack on to the end of that. Yeah. Ecclesiastes, this is 518. It says, I have seen what is best for people here on earth. They should eat and drink and enjoy their work. Mm-hmm. Because the life of God has given them on earth is short. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So eating and work is right there with eating and drink. Yep. I was thinking too, I can't, I don't know where it is, but whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. They, even the mundane, simple tasks that, um, that that's yeah. you the right perspective. Yep. Whatever you do, do it. Do your best. Do it for the glory of God. It gives it meaning. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we can see that through. I mean, it'd be, it's this is explains why when Paul in Second Thessalonians we talked about last week, he hears about people that are idle 
who are doing who are not doing anything, and they're doing it maybe because the end the end is coming, and they think that they think it doesn't matter anyways. And he condemns it. He says, "Get to work. Uh, God made you to work. You're actually not being true to your calling as a human if you're being idle." It's countercultural. <laughs> well, I think we've started to see that a little bit more mm-hmm. of yes. what the consequences are mm-hmm. when people who really can work mm-hmm. aren't and how that affects our communities. Mm-hmm. And Yeah. All right, let me pray. Our Father in Heaven, God, You are infinite in being and holy and good and beautiful and glorious and we cannot understand you fully, and yet we see that you are a worker. We at least see that much that we are called to work and to rest um, as you did in, when you created the world. And we pray, God, that even today as we worship you, that we would do so with a restful heart, um, trusting you and, and looking to you in faith as we worship you. And that as we return to our work tomorrow, that we would do so with joy and and pleasure and um, delight in that you made it as we reflect on the fact that you made us to do this work. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.